You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I have just realized that doing Facebook Lives is different than going on Zoom because it's using the Facebook profile and all my words are backwards behind me. <laughs> but that's yeah, okay. It, it, it looks kind of like hieroglyphics or something from yes. here. It's, it's actually a super woke, like, ANCAP statement that if you can decipher uh, okay. that, people, then that would be awesome. <laughs> Aw. In a mystical liberty language. Yes. We actually have some <laughs> engagements already, which is really exciting. So um, where are you at right now, Mike? So right now I'm at home. I'm uh, at home in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just validating some signatures for the, uh, the Maj campaign before you, before you uh, went live. All right. That's awesome. Um, so I would like to in introduce my guest this evening. This is Sir Michael Heiss. He's actually not knighted, so forget that first part. But um, he is the founder of the Mises Caucus. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Michael. So, uh, well, I've been an activist in the libertarian community for over 10 years now. Um, I mean, I, I got started, I, I wouldn't say I got started in Ron Paul 08, but like, well, I got started knowing about libertarianism, I guess, in Ron Paul 08. And uh, I, I was young, was new to the internet, didn't really know anybody, so I wasn't involved, but I, I followed him. And um, I started getting involved shortly before the, the Ron Paul 2012 campaign in the grassroots. Uh, I ended up doing some end the Fed rallies on my own. Um, you know, at first it was just me and my best friend, you know, went to the Philly Federal Reserve and I was bullhorning, you know, about mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve. And then, you know, I set up another one and there was like six people or 12 people or something like that. And then I set up another one and there was like 40 people. And I realized that uh, I stumbled onto an underground uh, community in Philly called Truth, Freedom, Prosperity, uh, which was a, a group of ANCAPs, uh, well, a anarchists of different different persuasions that um, most of them supported the Ron Paul campaign, but they didn't have any affiliation with the LP or the GOP. Um, you know, so like Mark Passio was a part of that crew. Uh, James Babb was a part of that crew. Um, and we did all kinds of stuff. So like I became an event organizer. You know, I would I would organize in the feds. I organized uh, uh, income tax uh, events. You know, I was heavy into 9-11 truth back, uh, at the time. I'm still a truther, but I'm not like involved. Mm -hmm. um, I have a few but, questions uh, about that. But well, okay. that's for later. <laughs> okay. In some ways, I would say 9-11 Truth, I mean, is what I really started with. And that was when I was like 14 years old. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in some ways, it, it really helped because um, when I started learning about libertarianism, the, the nature of government wasn't a very hard pill to swallow once you've already accepted the false flag thing. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So... Um, but yes, yeah, so I did that. And then after the, uh, the end of the Ron Paul campaign, uh, I went a political anarchist and got involved with like cop blocking. And I did a podcast called The Big Plantation uh, and would do man on the street interviews with that and, and uh, uh, do, do some stunts, I guess you could say. I got kicked out of a Paul Ryan event. What? Back oh. <laughs> no, no, no. Back that up. Please tell us the story. As, you, as I have told you, um, Mike, this is an informal setting, and we like to be silly here. We, meaning okay. me, and maybe my kids. So, so this is, I mean, I have the video of this on, on YouTube, actually. Um, but so me and my buddy Keith, I used to work for him. Um, you know, we, we left a job site. We were painting house, uh, houses, 
and I uh, left the job site and got free tickets to go to a Paul Ryan event. And basically we were in the crowd and, and uh, <laughs> just waited for kind of like a lull in the action to, to shout out, you know, to, to heckle him, you know, and, and, you know, oh, you voted for the bailouts. Uh, you're not conservative, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, Keith went first and Secret Service grabbed him and, and walked him out. So then I was kind of standing there on my own and I think they knew that I was with him. So, <laughs> you know, I, I went ahead and I was still pretty good in my Alex Jones face. So I, I yelled something about like, you know, this dude represents the new world order, <laughs> you know, know, something like that. And, <laughs> and, uh, um, but people, people who aren't who haven't followed Alex Jones need to understand that it was different back then. Like okay. he, he, he like no, he really was. Like he was into Ron Paul. He would have Ron Paul on a lot. He wasn't this like, uh, like alt. I, I don't want to say alt right, but he wasn't. He he wasn't pro Trump or or the kind of movement that Trump represents. A right, and a right wing apologist. I, yeah, like I would say that started along with Molyneux right around 2015. Like right as the campaign happened. So this was all before that but um but yeah so then they started escorting me out and then you know the funniest thing about that video is is you know we're heckling paul ryan so i guess it's assumed that we were like liberals you know so you know one guy you hear one guy yell at me like why don't you wake up and get a job and it's like we're literally covered in paint you know what i mean like i have paint in my hair you know <laughs> like we came, we came from a, like a blue collar job site so Okay, so you, um, so you basically are saying you're like a badass anarchist. Is that what you're saying, Mike? If that's what you want to call me, yeah. I, I did go that after, after they screwed over Ron Paul when the general election hit, and this is also on YouTube, I did go to a polling place to campaign for Vote for Nobody. So, like, <laughs> so, like, people would walk in, and I would have paperwork, and they're like, oh, I know who I'm voting for. I'm like, this isn't for anybody. It's just I, I want you to think about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and basically say, like, how much debt has to happen, how much uh, wars have to happen, how much regulation has to happen before we all just say, like, we don't consent to this anymore. Our rights come from God, not the government. I just want you to think about that. <laughs> like, and, do, do yeah, you consider, it was fun. Do you consider yourself coming from the right? Uh, I never, I never thought about it that way. Honestly, I, I, I would say I probably have more connections with the left. And if it wasn't for libertarianism, I'd probably be on the left because the way it worked out was me and my best friend, Kyle kind of got into the, the Ron Paul thing together, but, uh, he went to like cyber school and I was in high school and, you know, public school and, and people weren't going down that path. So we kind of went down that path together and he kind of started it, I would say, but he was into like Noam Chomsky and, and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I was, I was so young at the time that I didn't really, I didn't know left, right and all that kind of thing. But, um, so I would say I would probably have ended up on the left if it wasn't for libertarianism or at least been more drawn to it. I find that very interesting because a lot of people, um, there's a little bit of controversy around the Mises Caucus, which obviously you are the founder of the Mises Caucus, and I'm a member. I'm an Ohio uh, Mises Caucus member of the Libertarian Party here in Ohio. Um, so what would you say to those people that think that it's some kind of like right-winged, hard-lined um, caucus? Uh, would you like to address that? That they actually don't think that, and they're just saying that to to push a narrative so that people can hate on us. Like that 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 they don't actually think that they don't haven't actually you know talked to anybody. They haven't actually read anything on the website. They they don't actually believe that. It's just a narrative that they're chasing. Okay, then I'm going to ask you a hard question right out the gate because, as you know, we shared. I'm part of the We Are Libertarians Network. 
And uh, I have a friend in there that says that this was, um, this was something you did to kind of kick back at Starwark, which I'm going to have him on next week and want to give him a really fair interview. But is there any truth to that? To what? To you forming the Mises Caucus to kick back at Starwark. No, but I can understand why people think that. Okay. I, I can absolutely understand why people think that. Um, and I, I have the documents. I have the proof. You can, you can, you can, you can look at, uh, you can go into hashtag Mises Caucus and go to the, if you go to the very beginning of it, because I don't really, I don't use hashtag Mises Caucus anymore. Like I, I use take human action for anything that I want to put a hashtag on. So there shouldn't be too much in hashtag Mises Caucus. Um, so if you go to that, you will see that um, I've been kicking this idea around way before, like a couple months before the beef really heated up between like Sarwark and Woods and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Now, here's what happened. It was very, again, I can understand why people would think that and why you might not believe what I'm about to say, but I swear to God, it's the truth. I don't use Twitter, right? So I had been yeah. kicking around the idea of the Mises Caucus for a while. And then finally, I just said, screw it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to do it. And I made the group. Well, it just so happens that I made the group while Sarwark was calling Tom Woods a Nazi on Twitter. So, like, I kind of organically, accidentally absorbed the fallout from that. Okay. And did I do it as a pushback, you know, because he said that? No, it's something I've been kicking around for an idea. But at the same time, I do think it's something that needs to be pushed back against. I mean, we call ourselves a big tent party. We call ourselves, you know, the Libertarian Party, and yet we uh, leadership seems to spend more time attacking libertarians that he doesn't like than the, the government that actually restricts our rights. Okay. So do you think that there's a place in the Libertarian Party? And uh, for all my fellow anarchists, I'm talking party politics. Get over yourself. Don't hit my DMs <laughs> with voting as violence. I just have no time for that. Um, but do you think that there's a place for uh, what is considered left libertarians in the Libertarian Party? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, I, 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 and I think we should have a, a healthy competition to, to figure out, you know, which one, like which branding works, who can bring in the most productive people, all of that kind of stuff. I would not consider socialists to be left libertarians. Right. I would generally consider left libertarians who are more concerned with like civil liberties and that aspect of things. That absolutely has its place. Um, and I've never said anything to the, to the contrary. But I, I do think that there are certain issues with, with the um, different strands of libertarianism that are more complicated than people have really thought, given that we have the, uh, the Dallas Accord that basically makes it so that all types of libertarians are welcome from minarchist to anarchist. Right. Well, and I think that's important. So I think that maybe you are, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, identifying left libertarian as more concerned with maybe L LGBTQ rights or um, right. that type of thing, which they're absolutely libertarians. I'm, I happen to be a practicing Christian, but I will defend, you know, somebody's right to not be, um, not to have their civil liberties taken away because they're gay. I think that's really weird. <laughs> um, so I, I think maybe definitions play a big part in that. Um, but as far as the Mises Caucus goes, so you've had some success for sure. There we go. What do you do with your lights? Are you going to like dance now? What's going well, on? I, I just saw, no, I, I saw all like that weird flashing in my glasses. and It was annoying me. So. <laughs> okay. Um, we have some great engagement. Actually, I did have a question from a friend of mine. He's actually running, I believe, for town council. I'm sorry, James, if I got that wrong. He wanted to know what your favorite sports ball is. 
So I, I have one is not sports ball at all. It's sports fist. I, I like basketball and I like boxing. Okay. Boxing is a horrible, a horrible sport. Oh, it's beautiful. It's the sweet science. How? And, 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 and what's, well, that's what it's always been called by because, but what's, what's really great about boxing in general is, is it's actually a metaphor and a microcosm of life itself. Uh, uh, go ahead. Explain. Well, I mean, you go in there, so unlike it being a one-on-one -on -one thing, it's, it's just as much internal as external. It's how much are you willing to take and how much are you willing to give? You know, how far are you willing to push yourself? And that's very much so about life. And, and if you have a path in life, if you, if, if you have a meaning and a purpose in life that you've chosen to stake out, it works very much so the same way. Um, life is a fight. You know what I mean? We're always fighting against the, the negative aspects of life to, to pursue you know, meaning and happiness and how much can you take and how much can you give will determine how far that you can go. Okay. I mean, these, these people literally walk into the ring and have wars and walk out with less of themselves physically than when they went in. You know what I mean? Like it's, you're, you're really, it, it's, it's really a sacrifice that these people give. And I, I just think it's, it's fascinating. Do you think that's smart? Well, yeah, they make millions of dollars. <laughs> And, 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 and lots of times, and that's another thing. So, like, my favorite boxer, the person that got me into boxing is Manny Pacquiao. This okay. guy was literally starving on the streets of the Philippines, like 110 pounds, you know, on the, on the end of a, a, a civil war. And through boxing became a, a complete living legend to where when he fights, the Philippines just stop. Like, crime in the Philippines just stops for the night. You know, and he's probably going to be the president. Now, I don't agree with his politics, but, mm -hmm. but the point is, is, is that he, comes, he has made hundreds of millions of dollars and feeds and houses a whole shitload of people. Like, like that's, that's pretty admirable. So I think that maybe you prefer uh, boxing because it is an independent sport. It's one person, and you like this, the, the story of that character, probably. Well, I like that, but I, like I said, I also like basketball. I'm a big 76ers fan. Yeah. Trust trust. trust <laughs> Trust the process. Sports balls. If you want to watch uh, the best um, sports cast out there, the best sports podcast, because I don't know sports, it would be Sports Ball by Mike Meharry and Alan Mosley. That's a libertarian okay. sports ball show. I'm just plugging them because I love them. And I can do what I want. because They're great show. guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So now we want to talk about something uh, a little bit new for the Mises Caucus, the pack. Tell me your objective, what's going on with that, what you're doing with it. Right. So Mises Pack, uh, we recently launched it. Um, so what that is, is it's what's called a hybrid pack. Um, so what that means is there's one committee, two bank accounts, and each, uh, each of those bank accounts basically serves as a different type of pack. So you have one bank account that serves as what we call a traditional pack, and one is a, a, a super pack. So uh, if you've seen me making posts on Facebook like, oh, you can become a recurring donor, the money that we're raising that way from our recurring donors is going to the, tradi the traditional pack, which is uh, candid essentially candidate support money. We actually just voted for our first expenditure to send a, well, I should say the other boards of directors just voted for the first expenditure um, to give $1,000 to the Maj Torre campaign. Mm -hmm. And in a month and a half's worth of time, with ha not, we didn't spend a nickel on paid advertisements or boosts or anything like that. We're already making $1,100 a month in that account. So, so the goal with the, uh, the traditional pack is to give direct financial assistance to local and county level LP candidates across the country. And then, so the other side of it, the super PAC, how we plan on filling that out is, is um, 
you know, ad revenue, proceeds from the stores, and our big donor base, which means I'm going to be making calls here to do that soon and all that kind of thing. But what we want to do with that is I kind of want to emulate what Young Americans for Liberty does mm -hmm. with um, Operation Win at the Door, which is, for anybody that doesn't know, it's so Young Americans for Liberty will go through their process to pick a state house candidate and to, to bet on, basically. And once they do that, they will then hire a team of students from their y'all chapters to go out to that candidate's district and say, all right, we've paid for your, your housing for a month. You know, here's, I think, 2,500 bucks or something like that for the month. Um, here's your walk list. You have to knock on 30,000 doors three times. And that's how they win. And they've gotten 38 wins out of like 75 or so races um, that they've been in, which is a very, and it's their first yeah. year that they've done it, which is very, very good. Um, so I kind of want to emulate something like that. But at the same time, because our focus is at the local and county level, for the most part, I don't think it'll make sense to do that for campaigns. For certain campaigns, it will, like Maj, because even though that's a local level campaign, it's like the sixth largest city in Pennsylvania. Right. So, but what I wanted, so my point is, is I want to do it more for causes, you know, so ballot initiatives, um, lobbying efforts, stuff like that. So a good example of that that I've been plugging a lot is the, um, the psilocybin or psychedelic mushroom uh, initiative in Denver, Colorado, Ooh. where, where they, they actually did decriminalize mushrooms. We got involved with that before it was ever on the ballot. Right. And so I actually reached out to the, the executive director of that. His name's uh, Kevin Matthews. And uh, at the time when I reached out, he said I was the first libertarian to have reached out to him. And so that kind of pissed me off. So um, we, we got him around on some podcasts. We got him on Lions of Liberty. We got him on Tom Woods. We got him on Free Man Beyond the Wall with Pete Raymond. And uh, Pete Mance. You know, then, well, Pete he's, Mance. He's Pete always Mance. <laughs> I'm still trying to adjust myself. Now you're throwing me off. <laughs> but so, but um, you know, so we did that. And then our uh, organizer in Colorado ended up getting him in front of the LP of Colorado, they passed a resolution to support it. He was able to recruit some volunteers and, you know, they knocked doors and they helped get that effort on the ballot and, and helped promote it after that as well. And um, the, the, the initiative passed by less than 2000 votes. So I think that effort really actually oh, counted yeah. for something, you know, and, and uh, what's, what's cool about that is there's been ripple effects already. Cause that was only like what a month ago. Um, but there's already been ripple effects. One, in my conversations with the executive director, uh, he, he, last conversation I had with him, he was identifying himself as a libertarian now. Hmm. So that's one. And two, it, it, it blazed a trail. It, it set a precedent. So like three weeks after that happened or two weeks after that happened, Oakland, California then passed an ordinance and upped the ante. They didn't just decriminalize mushrooms. They decriminalized all natural psychedelics. So they, they decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms, DMT, ayahuasca, ibogaine, uh, peyote, everything natural. And at, on the tail end of that, like a few days later, I saw I was reading articles that said that there's over 80 organizations that reached out to them saying, hey, give me the language. Hey, how did you do it? Hey, how do we organize something like this? That's so awesome. this is something. Right. So so this is something that's spreading. And we got in on the ground level with an issue coalition. And we can now, you know, learn more and, and get our people more involved around the country and put and, and not only get the electoral victories where we can get them, but also interact with people who are already active in a political sense and give them our philosophy and see who we can pull towards our side.
I think that's an amazing goal. Um, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, part of the reason I joined the Mises Caucus was not necessarily for that. I mean, I'm already a member, an active member of the LP, and I've, there, there's great people in Ohio. Unfortunately, we have an uphill battle, I'm sure you know. Being from I've heard some stories. Being from a neighboring state, it's really difficult. The R's and D's, being in a swing state, they hate us, like, tremendously. And um, so I, I think that's really cool. I think part of the reason, um, and we can touch on this, that I'm still active in a political party um, because I was a hardcore neocon. And a lot of people, oh, you know, political parties are for status and this and that. But I think there's such an opportunity and such a platform and a bullhorn. And then, like, you were talking about these initiatives that you helped support and bring awareness to. We had issue one in Ohio. I'm really freaking sad that didn't pass. But the LP did make strides to bringing that towards people. And I think issue voting is super important. And I'm really pleased to hear that you're working on that. Let, let me uh, kind of veer off to the side on the whole anarchist thing, because I was an ap apolitical anarchist. I just want to remind the anarchist crowd that anarchy is a Greek word for without rulers. Mm -hmm. Well, you have rulers, and it doesn't matter if you know that they're illegitimate or if you can philosophically invalidate them or not. They, they have the guns, they have the power, they have the perceived legitimacy. And in the end of the day, that's all that really matters. So in a sense, anarchism in the world isn't real. It only exists as a philosophy. So well, I would say- It exists here I, I, and here. It, it exists as a philosophy, but I would say in the world, abolition precedes anarchism. True. And you aren't going to have abolition if you don't engage. Well, and, and I, would, I would say definitely like places like the 10th Amendment Center, um, nullification it, in itself is anarchy. It's saying, I don't agree right. and I'm just not gonna do it. These are- We're, we're, actually, we're actually partnered with the, with the 10th Amendment Center to help with guys. the- I love guys. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. And, and um, we're partnered with them on the super PAC side of things, on the, um, you know, the issue coalition side of things. And they're actually going to be making uh, they're going to be making a video series at my request um, to hey, train Michael people. Bolden. Hey, Mike Meharry. <laughs> they, well, they're going to be making they're going to be making training videos. So, like, here's how you build a coalition. Here's mm -hmm. how you influence your city council. Oh, here's, you know, Michael Bolden calling city council about an issue. And here's how you should handle that you know, and, and all that kind of things that we don't have in the party. We don't, we have a very serious lack of infrastructure. And that's one of the things that we as Mises Pack are trying to address. Well, I, and I think also we just don't have the numbers, which I've, I've appreciated the uh, Mises Caucus because I think we're bringing in new people and then being on the ground here in Ohio um, with some of my uh, like Mises Caucus fellow members, we're kind of about doing something really organically and locally and making like relationships and doing real things. And I think that's really important. Um, we don't have this huge national party where um, we would have one, but it's not huge um, where we just have the benefit of or people. effective <laughs> yeah, or just the benefit of people just picking one or the other. Like people will just pick RD because they have this, you know, idea that yeah. you have to pick one or the other. We don't have that benefit. Like we have to bring people over and the best way to do that is on the ground. Well, it's on the ground, but I also think that this is actually the, the power of the, the issue coalition strategy, because it's one thing to explain the ideas to people and them thinking of it as theory. It's another one to become, become an example, basically. You know, it's, it's another thing to actually go out. So, for example, here in Norristown, I'm trying to lead by example here at home and decriminalize weed here. And the reason I picked that issue is because I have no hope on on some like a tax issue or anything like that, because 70 percent right. of the voting population is Democrat and the entire city council is Democrat. Right. And when I say I, when I say Democrat, I mean, like 
a couple weeks ago, these guys voted for a resolution to make Norristown, um, you know, completely green energy by 2050. I have no idea how they're going to do that. And they didn't do it with any public debate. But that's my point. Like, yeah. so it's not like, oh, I just chose weed, because, you know, but my point no, is, is, I think it's a winnable argument right now. And, and actually, I mean, if you look at the dominoes that would fall, it's, it could be a very successful as far as like, um, bringing families back together and really kind of changing, uh, well, well here's the, here's the, here's the thing is, is so I, I walked in into my first city council meeting and I introduced my, the, the chief of police attends those meetings. And I introduced myself to him and I just threw it out there and I said, you know, Hey, what is the state of, of decriminal around here? And to my shock, he went off on a rant of like, you know, I don't know, but it's time, you know, like we got to stop locking people up for this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, nobody's done the work, but if somebody did do the work, I would be down with that. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So all, all I did was I went and, and so here in uh, Pennsylvania, we have a medical program, but we can't pass legalization because um, Republicans control both the House and the Senate and they control all the committees. So even the ones that supported the medical, not a single one will, will vote for recreational, even though our property tax situation is like absurd. And um, so the Democrat Party of Pennsylvania in 2017 made it a part of their policy platform to legalize weed. So I brought that up. And uh, so but because of that Republican situation, the move has been to decriminalize weed in as many areas as possible. So it's decriminalized in Philly, it's decriminalized in Pittsburgh, it's decriminalized in, in Harrisburg, it's decriminalized in State College, it's, it's decriminalized in the biggest city of, of Amish country, which is Lancaster. Mm -hmm. And that was the one that I found that had um, the least, that was the least restrictive. So I took that language and um, basically just superimposed, you know, uh, municipality of Norristown over city of Lancaster and went to the city council meeting, spoke to why I think this should happen followed up by emailing the language to all of them and then just keeping on them, you know, and then they invited me to a workshop because to, to have a more in-depth conversation where there's a back and forth. And, you know, I printed out the language, gave it to everybody and brought out the, um, the best weed lobbyists in the state, a guy named Les Stark with an organization called the uh, Keystone Cannabis Coalition. And now it looks like they're going to do it. And not only does it look like it's, that they're going to do it, they they're I think they're going to throw it into committee to add language for expungements, which would make it the best decriminalization ordinance in the entire state. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. And, and I think um, if you could maybe touch on I'm kind of going off on a different path here, but uh, maybe a lot of people um, uh, are newer to libertarianism. I have an open page and so I just have a lot of conservatives that join. Uh, can you maybe speak on um, because this is an issue you're passionate about the difference between legalizing and decriminalization? So decriminalization just basically means that you're not going to go to jail for it. So it's still technically a crime, but it's what's called a summary offense. So you're not going to get arrested. It's not going to be it's like getting a ticket for jaywalking or something like that. So with this one, it's a twenty five dollar ticket, whereas legalization is allowing it to be in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. You know, allow So with decriminalization, you can't do research. You can't do a business. You can't or you can't sell it. Stuff like that. Whereas with legalization, you can albeit it's open to government regulations. But I would, I would say that that is the superior option because people need this market. You know, people really do need this market, even if it had, even if it's artificially more expensive than it ought to be because of regulations and taxation. So people need access to these, these things. So you think legalization is superior to decriminalization? Yeah, because your average person isn't a, you know, fuck the government anarchist. I'm going to do what I want anyway, you know, and, and they're, they're, they're not going to take that risk. 
the average person, no, you know, yeah. unless, 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 you know, you're dealing with like a cancer patient and they got nothing to lose type of thing. But if you want the average person to, to be a little bit more free and have access to these markets, then that's the, that's the unfortunate reality of what comes with legalization. I, I would actually agree with that. And I think Ohio is, is a really good case study of that. Um, our, uh, marijuana laws are uh, quite ridiculous and backwards, especially, I mean, we're not a, a super red state, I mean, in certain areas, but uh, obviously we're a swing state. Um, I, I find it really, uh, our marijuana laws are so backwards. And I think obviously it's because of the state control of, and pharmaceutical companies lobbying. But um, the fact that I can talk to people on a daily basis, I work in customer service, and I would say 99% of people think that they should be able to go out and purchase marijuana or cannabis at yeah. their own free will. I, which just goes to show that that population has nothing to do with what the state does, you know? Um, right. So. And, and as far to go back a little bit, I don't think people realize how important the shroom thing is. Um, this isn't just a, inform us. this isn't just a, Oh, I get to trip balls now. Like type of thing. Like that's, so the reason what, what gave shrooms the legitimacy to become so I, personally, I think psychedelics generally are going to be the next um, domino in the overall drug war. Hmm. And the, what happened to even create this crack for them in the first place is that the FDA has designated both shrooms and MDMA, which is the um, the active ingredient in uh, ecstasy. Okay. They, they the FDA has actually designated both of those as breakthrough medications. And in the, in the case of shrooms, it's because um, so there's been a lot of research over the past 20 years, a lot of it being head, uh, headed up by the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore um, to show that it has profound therapeutic potential for the three big of psycho, uh, the big three of psychological uh, ailments. So uh, anxiety, depression and addiction. Mm -hmm. So so they gave it to end of, you know, they did clinical studies where they gave it to end of life cancer patients and like 70 percent of them were able to be more at peace with their situation, you know, and more accepting of their situation. They gave it to, you know, multi-decade long cigarette smokers and 70% of them quit, you know, um, wow. stuff like that. I, I was unaware of and, that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be in my opinion. So in the clinical studies, it's not like they're just giving people shrooms. It's a controlled environment and they're mixing it with therapy. And then they take, you know, they take surveys with the, with the, um, the patients. And one of the questions that they ask these people is, is they ask them to rate the spiritual significance of, of the, the experience that they went through. And the majority of people actually rate this as one of the most spiritually significant experiences of their entire lives on par with the birth of their first child or death of their first parent. And, and, and so, so here's, here's how that plays out. Like, like when, like when it gets legal, let's say. So how many people are on pills for anxiety, depression, and, and addiction. A whole shitload, right? Mm -hmm. now, now, how does that work? You go to a doctor and you get a prescription. How many people in one day can a doctor churn out prescriptions? Mm -hmm. 10, 15? So, so your average shroom trip is going to last about four to six hours, meaning that if you open up a, a new field of specialized jobs, psychedelic therapy, once you do some preliminary um, you know, therapeutic uh, uh, you know, why am I drawing a blank on a very basic word? Uh, appointments. Say, yeah, 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 yeah. Appointments. Yeah, appointments <laughs> with clients to kind of get them comfortable, get them, you know, get their case uh, load set. But if you actually do the, the, 
the, the shroom therapy, the average doctor is probably seeing one, maybe two clients in a day. So let's say that takes 10% of the market from those three ailments. Mm -hmm. How many jobs is that? You know what I mean? Like that's of specialized work. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had not thought of it from that perspective before. Hmm. I, I personally think that, and, and, and with M, in the case of MDMA, that got granted as a, a breakthrough medication because it's, it's having a rapid rate of uh, success with PTSD. Yeah. So it's basically, it's basically making, and, 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 and when I say depression and PTSD, I actually mean treatment-resistant depression and PTSD in the clinical studies. So they're actually My, wait, that's wait. a lot of the comments. A lot of people have been actually commenting that it's an amazing um, treatment for PTSD. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of ignorant of that. It's, um, obviously, I believe in the decriminalization. So before psychedelics, yeah, but before before psychedelics fell victim to the drug war, MDMA was being used in couples therapy. Because and 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 the reason so the reason it looks like that it is so effective with PTSD is it allows these vets to talk about things without re-traumatizing themselves when under a normal state of mind they do re-traumatize themselves mm -hmm. and re-experience it. But this puts them in a state of mind where they can deal with it. You know, and yeah. then if as long as it's a productive session, they can take that with them when they come back to the normal state of mind. Um, I, t I want you to send me some information about that so us here on the ground in Ohio can work on that. So please do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Got but, it. But we're going to move on from drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was fun. That was really interesting. Um, so went on to your objective for the Mises Caucus. I don't think we're going to hit a game tonight because we're actually having really good discussion. I'd rather just um, have that. I normally All make, business. I, yeah. Because, you know, I'm super professional. Um, my, but I will have you back on to play pick your poison, but, uh, you are, um, would you say that you are his campaign manager, Maj? No, no, absolutely not. Okay. I, it's, it's important to, okay. it's important. No, the reason I say that is because I am the chair of a federally filed PAC. It's actually rather important right. to make the distinction that I am, I am and only ever can be a volunteer. <laughs> well, here you go. You heard it here, folks. Um. We'll probably hit a, um, a decent amount of numbers here. He is not a campaign manager, but you are supporting him as a volunteer. So number one, uh, what did you see in Maj? And uh, what are you trying to accomplish in helping his campaign? So what I saw with Maj is exactly what he tells you his role is. Um, is, is he, he talked a lot about, uh, when he does his talks for Black Guns Matter and when he talks to libertarians, He's talked a lot about this idea of emissaries. And one of, the, one of my favorite things about Maj is that he's, he's very easy to talk to and blunt. And, it, and you can have conversations with things that some people might be worried about offending people. Or, and, and he gets it, gets where you're coming from. And it's just a, a nice conversation or, oriented around how do we solve this problem. So, for example, it's just the fact that in, in, in certain and this isn't me, this is Maj. <laughs> like, it's just the fact that in certain inner city communities, you are going uphill against a lot of anti-white racism. It's just a fact. And because of that, libertarianism is going to automatically, because these people are, a lot of these people are basically conditioned, you know, from school, from media, mm -hmm. you know, from the fact that, that they, they have been put into a, a 
artificially dependent situation mm-hmm. by and I would I would I would argue by design. Oh, that, that, I that, would say that, for that, sure. that would <laughs> that 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 incentivizes them to, to vote this way. And, and, you know, if they vote for the left, that means they're, they're going to be exposed to left intellectuals. And that's why they know who um, they don't know who Walter Williams is, but they know who Cornell West is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and um, that type of thing. But anyway, because of that, you, you and me, if we go and try to preach libertarianism, we're going to get dismissed we're, as racist on the right pro Trump, whatever. Uh, and, that's, and, and that's understandable, though. I mean, I think I, so too. I would but... say it's okay. I think it's understandable. Right. Exactly. And um, so, so Maj talks about this concept of emissaries that we need people from those communities that those communities trust, who look and sound and talk like them, to translate our message to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of these people already have natural proclivities towards most libertarian ideas. Well, you know, the idea natural. of being a hustle, the idea of, be, of being a hustler is actually pretty capitalist. It's just, you know, they, they've been essentially regulated out of access to entrepreneurship, you right. know, and it's not like they don't lock their doors. It's not like they don't arm themselves. It's not like, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, it's not like they don't understand that they have to be responsible for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just they don't have any leaders that are teaching libertarian ideals. Oh, that's, and by, Maj is, that's by design. Yeah, right. But Maj is breaking that mystique almost single handedly. He's breaking that mystique. So what he's done with Black Guns Matter is he goes to these communities. He just raised two hundred thousand dollars while campaigning for Black Guns Matter, yeah. by the way. <laughs> that's and, awesome. and so what he's doing is he is setting up workshops in cities where no other Second Amendment organization will go. The, mm-hmm. the NRA is not going into Harlem. Um, so this is my show? Yeah. Fuck the NRA. Fuck hard. <laughs> right, but I'm just making the point, is, is that is most people, when right. you say Second Amendment organizations, they're going to think of the NRA. Well, the NRA is not going to Harlem. They're not going to Compton. They're not going to, to West Philly or North Philly. They're not, you know, they're not going to these areas, mm-hmm. but Maj is. Good. And, and... And he's opening up these conversations because, again, in some of these cultures, the conversation around guns is different than than what might what me and you might have. You know, I I've personally had people from these communities tell me, oh, man, the Second Amendment wasn't written for me. Those people own slaves. So it doesn't apply to me, you know, or or, you know, there's gang activity in the inner city. So they see it as associated with gang activity mm-hmm. instead of self-defense. Right. And and and. It's going to be difficult for an outsider to break that barrier, mm-hmm. you know, and Maj is doing that. So that's what that's what I saw with him. And now he's he's breaking the barrier, not just on gun rights, but he's becoming more and more libertarian as the process goes. And and he is able to talk to these people in a way that you and me can't. I think that's amazing. And I think that you said that very well. Um, uh, you know, we can pretend that. Uh, there's some type of uh, translation of liberty to every single person. And, and in a way, we're all born libertarian. We're all born anarchists. But uh, we live in a state of society, and we live in a society where um, government and media, we group people into certain groups. And breaking through that is really difficult because there's such a control. Like media, uh, it completely controls the idea that the inner city, um, there's gun violence, that these people shouldn't have guns, where um, – 
the liberty movement could really bring about a lot of positive change. But if I'm going in there as some like red haired white girl that lives in the suburbs, why the hell would they listen to me? You know, right. I, w- I wouldn't listen to me. So I, I think that's, and, that's a, an amazing point. Yeah. And, and Maj is very open to having us give him information for the purposes of it being translated. So like, mm-hmm. for example, I just gave him a book by Walter Williams called Race and Economics, How Much Can Be Blamed on Discrimination. And the the point of this is is that you will see members of the left, and and again, a lot of the black community is is voting with with that demographic. So Mm -hmm. you will see arguments there that, oh, racism is what, what keeps black you know blacks out of jobs or racism is is what makes them have a proclivity towards uh welfare or racism is is you know what's keeping black youth unemployment at 50 percent and i'm not saying that there's no element of that but it's not the primary element it's not and 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 it's but the thing is is that you can bumper sticker things that way and stir up people's emotions and and lead them by the nose with with stuff like that you can't bumper so you can bumper sticker that but you can't bumper sticker this which is to say that Back during Jim Crow, despite Jim Crow, blacks were entering the middle class at a, at a mm-hmm. rate not far different from whites right. or even higher than whites, despite Jim Crow, despite the fact that the schools still sucked. Yeah. So the reason for that is because back then the cities weren't as regulated and taxed the way they are now. So there was actually blue collar jobs that provided a middle class existence. Economic that, freedom brings that everybody shit, up. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and obviously the social situation is what it was, but in, in no one's making excuses for that or, or justifying that. It was horrible. But the point is, is that despite that hurdle, that's how strong markets are. Str- like despite mm-hmm. that hurdle, that, that they, were, they were entering the middle class at a higher rate. So now that the regulations have come in, and so the schools are basically producing graduate level illiterates. So if you raise the minimum wage, you're basically cutting off the people at the very bottom from meaning, being able to negotiate themselves into a job. Mm-hmm. And, and you're basically cutting off the bottom rungs of, of up, up, uh, upward economic mobility mm-hmm. and creating a situation at the bottom where you are artificially incentivizing a choice between the welfare state or and other means of making money. And this is where the drug war comes in and is disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I wouldn't say that the drug war itself, pers- like, I personally wouldn't say the drug war itself is racist. I but, would say you know sentencing. What? You know what, Michael? I would, uh, so there's two parts to that. I'm, an, I'm going to interrupt because that's what I do. Um, so I actually had Eric July on before, and he brought a good point. He, he struggled a little bit, and I understood that he came from the inner city, but he also thought that people didn't, uh, the drug war was racist, but at the same time, he didn't want to say it was necessarily because people are responsible for themselves. I think that it's both. So I have known. Well, define. Well, do me a favor. Define racism, because because okay. I, what I sure. find that people actually mean by racism is they're saying they're calling a disparate outcome racist. No, no, and, no. I don't it, believe in that. Uh, oh, trust yeah. Me, I fight fear housing all the time, and. They say the outcome of something, even if the intention is different, is racism. And that's bullshit. I'm a, I'm, I don't believe in that. However, um, just personally, and maybe this is maybe, uh, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't remember. But um, I have known a lot of police officers. I did grow up in the suburbs. Um, and so I don't have a huge experience until I went down to national and stuff to uh, deal with people maybe in the inner city or things like that. Um, but... I know, I know and knew a lot of police officers. I'm not a fan of the police, as anybody who follows me, me knows that. Fuck the cops. Fuck the pigs. Um, 
I would say that there's an errant racism, especially in the Cleveland Police Department. Um, probably going to get arrested. But uh, uh, there, is, <laughs> there, is, there is racism in the system. Uh, there is, amongst these band of blue brothers, racism, for sure. Now, I, I wouldn't say it's a universal or that it's the complete I wouldn't cause. say it's, right. I wouldn't say it's the primary cause. I would say that this chain of economic, uh, economic interferences creates such an incentive structure as to make people more likely to commit what is considered crime, even though right. it shouldn't be crime, which then invites the police presence, which then... Thank you, Will. That word was anecdotal. And maybe it is anecdotal. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and now here's, here's where I will absolutely say it's racist. I don't have an economic explanation for the sentencing. The sentencing is... is oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, that, that seems pretty racist. Look at, look at <laughs> white people that use drugs and black people that use drugs and look how much time they're serving. It's pretty freaking basic. But that's in the judicial system and with the cops. Um, right. And, and so I think that they are trained to be racist, whereas the general public, um, I would say it, it goes more to the fact that, you know, um, we have these cis entitlement systems in place. And I well, again, I would say racist. I would say that the incentives of the police officers themselves lend lend itself to people viewing things that way. You know, when you have quotas and, you know, you can go into the hood and bust drug dealers or, or, you know, drug, there's violence associated with drug dealers. Right. And that's, you know, they, they arrest over a million drug, you, you know, people every year. So, like, that's a lot of what they're dealing with. And a lot of that, there's a lot of that that's tied to gang activity. So I, I just, it's very, my point is, is that it's very complicated mm -hmm. and it's very multifaceted. Yes. And, and it's not as simple as slapping an emotional bumper sticker of racism on something to no, get I people all key, keyed up. And, and you can't, but, and again, this is just another one of the conversations that Maj can open up in a way that you and me can't. And I would agree. And I think that economic freedom um, is the best path because what that will do um, is change people's hearts and minds. I just will say that, um, number one, just because I hate the police so much, <laughs> um, well, uh, at being like a white girl in the Midwest and having dated a few police officers, and I'm sorry, um, there's there's inherent racism in and police departments and um also i think that that's probably one of the uh one of the biggest issues that we as libertarians should take head on this um hero worship of the police it will lead to horrible things and i don't understand how a lot of libertarians and maybe they're new to libertarianism can have this police worship, I think that that is the most dangerous thing we can do. Um, and so I can understand somebody coming from the inner city and hating police. I don't like it myself. And I, you know, I can bat my eyelashes and get out of stuff. They can't do that. I have a video on YouTube of myself getting arrested uh, because I was filming. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's so funny is that cops who are, you know, they have this special, there's this special class of people that hold this gun in the badge. I found... Um, overall, they're the least knowledgeable of the law. I know more about the law than a police officer does. Well, it's, it's, it's because 90% of their job, at least 90%, uh, is just based off of people fearing the power and people cowering. And most people don't push back. And they get so used to that that they think that there's something wrong with you if you do just do something besides roll over, you right. know? And, and it is scary. 
it, it really is. I've, I've encountered it many times. Um, <laughs> now, I'm, I had, now imagine I, I had, being in the inner city and being a different color skin. Right. But I, again, I would say that the problem, I would say the problem primarily is the power. Yeah. And, and, and again, and, and my, my, the reason I'm hesitant to, to claim racism, racism with these things is because the media takes that and ignores the core problem of power and makes and pits us against each other with, with these race games. And now the, you know, the public, the public police brutality movement is black lives matter, which, you know, right. it's not, it's not, it's not that police have too much power or, or, uh, you know, badges grant extra rights. It's, Cops hate black people. Right. When when the problem is cops actually kill like eleven hundred plus people a year, they take they steal more money in, in civil asset forfeiture than than burglars rob in a year, you know, and, right. and all of these kind of things. So I, I'm he very hesitant because I think one thing libertarians need to do better uh, on, generally speaking, is how we are socially conditioned to mm -hmm. to prep us for political purposes. Well, we don't want our movement to be absconded by the right or the left. And it, we could take that whole, like, I work with Puncture the Silence in Cleveland. I work with the Young Communist League. Dear, my parents are so proud. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I want to take that message and say what you're saying. Here's the, the, the principles of what's wrong with this. It's not that this this inherent racism and that's the entire reason. Um, we just can't be co-opted by the left in that way. But in the same way, when we talk about economics, it's, we can't be co-opted by the right. This is actually one thing where I would say it's, it's not the left per se. Like the, I mean, the left has that, but it's more the power of the media to divide and pit against the, the whole oh, divide and conquer so thing. they're so good at it, aren't they? We need they to be are. better. We suck as libertarians because I would say that I do like infotainment, okay? Um, I would not say I'm some kind of brainiac. Uh, I, I'm, I'm well-read, but I'm definitely not a talking head. Uh, we have a lot of talking heads. We need more people that can talk to regular people. We really do. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. Well, I'm going to go to, I think we're closing in an hour, which is perfect for Facebook Live. I've had such a good time. I didn't even play <laughs> it. Silly goes game. by fast. I know. Um, so I want to ask you, uh, what do you see, what are your goals for the future for the Mises Caucus? And then give us your creds. Like, where can people, you know, hook up with us and things like that? So I just want to keep growing, basically. I, I, I want to just keep growing. We have over 40 organizers, and, and I want to – we don't have them in every state, but we have over 40 organizers total mm -hmm. in over, well over 30 states. And I, I, I just want to grow and, and, you know, get people elected locally and, and at the county level. I want to get liberty initiatives passed where we can. And in the process of doing that, I want the – I mean, I'll be frank. I would – I mentioned earlier about inter-party competition. I want to win the inter-party competition. I want the Austro-Libertarians to be the, the, the branding lead in the party. And I want us to be the engine inside the party that gets the do most shit done. Do you hear that, done. Dennis? Dennis, do you hear that? <laughs> Dennis, you know Dennis Beatty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's on the wall network, which I, but um, yeah, he was just curious. He had some questions for you. I did ask you one, but he's a good guy. But, but there's <laughs> multiple ways of looking like that, uh, looking at that. Like Dennis would, would try to paint that. I, I think Dennis would try to paint that in a bad way, but why, why shouldn't we be competition? I thought the whole point was that, uh, you know, that, that competition breeds uh, innovation, yeah. you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if I may say so myself, I'm not aware of a hybrid pack that is aimed at the bottom up of the party 
uh, long term ever. I'm, I'm not aware of that. I'm not aware of any other or organization in the party that's making $1,100 in a month and a half to, to, to help candidates without spending a nickel to get it. I'm not aware of that. Like, so even if you don't agree with uh, the Austro-Libertarian position, which I would say is rather big tenet itself, mm -hmm. believe it or not, um, that, then that's fine. But I do think that we de deserve some respect because we're doing a lot of really good things for the party. Mm -hmm. You know, we can build bridges and already have built bridges that the party itself has burnt. Now, some people are happy about that, but that, I think, shows the difference between competition and... and the toxic element, you know, we, we shouldn't be happy about trying to burn bridges with Ron Paul or burn bridges. I don't want to burn bridges with left li libertarians. I want right. to burn every bridge with socialists. But right. but but but, um, you know, my point is, is that there is we are a all libertarian group. And I think as long as we have def uh, definitions of what makes a, a legitimate part of the libertarian tent um, that that we should follow that. And that's that's it. No, I think that's a great point. And I would say um, I'm somebody that uh, is more of a uniter. I, I'm a bridge builder and I'm a member of the Mises Caucus of the LP and I'm very active in it. Um, and I think that's a good point. And most people I associate with, even like I just, I joked about Dennis. He's actually very pragmatic and would love to build bridges with people. Well, um, well I mean, so I, I, I use the word Austro-Libertarian, right? Mm -hmm. So like Mises himself was a utilitarian minarchist that mm -hmm. upheld the idea of the UN. That, right. you know, um, Rothbard was a, a, a pro-choice anarchist, yeah, you know, they are, right. But my yeah. point is, is that the Austro-Libertarian position itself is, is, it, it's not just one line, you know, and, and it's not that simple. And, and I think there's certain conversations that we haven't had in the party about how diverse it really is. So like, let's take borders, for example. The truth of the matter is, is that there in my from what my observation is that there is two different legitimate positions on borders that have that would that would recommend different policy prescriptions, mm -hmm. but both come from different legitimate lines of, of libertarian thought. So I would, I would say the agree. open like the open borders position. I, I would, would I am comes open from, borders. Yeah. Right. I, I would consider myself private borders. But again, we're getting so oh, of course that's that's not shouldn't even be. Why are we? Well, they're two different things. No, yes. So it's not. But, but it, it, they're two different things. And I, I don't would say believe so. in collective ownership, but I definitely believe in private property rights. That's a cornerstone of libertarian ideas. Right. I don't know and why I would this say, is hard. <laughs> well, because in my opinion, it comes from the fact that there's more than one strain of legitimate libertarian thought. So I would say the open borders position comes from the liberal line of evolution. And I mean that in a historical sense, you know, like the founding fathers all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that has come through as, as the, the open border position is manifested in this, whereas the private borders comes from the, the Rothbardian line of, of libertarian thought. I love Rothbard, uh, but he of, was wrong a lot. But he, I love him. <laughs> but, well, I, or another way of putting it would be the, the uh, logical deductive line of, of libertarianism. You know what I mean? And those two things are both legitimate lines of libertarian thought, but manifest themselves in, and, and no, most times they manifest themselves with the same kind of, let's say, policy prescriptions or, or end goals. Right. There's just a couple of them where they don't, you well, know what I mean? And, and we have to accept that. I would even say, you know, um, I get, because I'm an uh, anarchist, I'm not an agorist. I try to in certain uh, points. I get a lot of shit for uh, voting and being in the political process. 
Um, and I don't really care anymore. I used to. But um, I would say that even, you know, scaling back government, so uh, going to like a, an Ellis Island type of, uh, you know, border control, I'm okay with that because it's better than what we have. Um, right. and, and so I think pragmatism is really smart. I think that libertarians happen to, on average, and this isn't true all the way across the board, they happen to be a little bit more intellectual people, people that think a little differently. Um, it's not easy to come to that. They're people that might... Um, buck certain mainstream ideas. So all we do sometimes is sit and fight about things and try to be smarter when uh, we're missing the forest for the trees. So, um, you know, I would definitely work with a closed border libertarian to say, okay, how can we make this better? How can we not put... See, I would, say closed, I would say closed borders is not in any of the legitimate... I don't even know what that means. You know what I mean? Like, and... and okay. Closed borders, like what? No immigration at all. How the I hell guess, are we going to do that? I guess no, no. That's like, like nuances. I, I would guess. I would say that um, I'm I'm completely open borders. Um, I'm for private property rights. So if I make if I make um, a deal with somebody to come and work for me, and I'm going to house them, who the fuck is the government to tell me I can't do that because they're nothing? Um, but I understand that um, we live in a world that's you know we are surrounded by countries and states and governments, and so I would say. There's a reality problem. Right, right. right. Yeah. Um, but that, oh gosh, Lord, that's been like the discussion on my <laughs> social media for the last three days. But anyways, um, it, where can we find uh, the Mises Caucus? I know all these things, but let people know. Well, I'll, I'll give a little bit of a lightning round because we have okay. projects that we're, that we're working on outside of just the political stuff. Okay. So, um, so the main website is lpmisescaucus.com. Mm -hmm. And there's some choice pages there that I would, I would really like people to go to. One is the Meet the Team page, and that's where you can see all of our organizers and contact them and try to get involved. Uh, and then there's also the Beginner's Guide to the LP uh, is a page that we have where if you're new to party politics or, you, and, or you're new to being active, um, this will give you some of the basics of Robert's Rules. It'll give you the basics of the structure of the three levels of the LP. It'll, it'll tell you about what are committees and how you can get involved, what are some basic projects you can do at the beginning to get started, uh, all of that kind of thing. So the Beginner's Guide to the LP. Okay. Um, you know, we're producing content. We're growing an email list. And uh, uh, so that's the main function of the website. Now, the other projects that we're working on, we just launched askinaustrian.com. So it's a, it's a simple email form. If you have any questions about uh, Austrian economic theory, if you have any uh, questions about libertarian theory or libertarian ethics, you can go ahead and shoot that, uh, use that email form to shoot them over. And we have four Austrian economists who have agreed to answer them on camera for us and, and allow us to publish it. So it's Ask an Austrian. Um, our store is going to be up any day now. And we got some really cool swag on there. And uh, the the... We're going to be. I got two more. So the other, the, the okay. other one, the other, the other project is, uh, or event, I should say, is uh, Dave Smith, uh, part of the Problem Podcast, mm -hmm. is going to be debating Nick Sarwark on September 10th, and we are going to be having a fundraiser after party at Gene Epstein's uh, home. Oh, so, awesome! Can I come to that? Yeah, so it's just going to be 15 bucks. It's a fundraiser. Okay. <laughs> so, but um. But, yeah, so there's that. And then the last one, in my opinion, the biggest and most important one is uh, we are organizing a rally for September 21st in Washington, D.C. called gonna be Peace. There. Mike, I have Hell a yeah. group of people coming from the LPMC oh. Ohio. Hello. How are you? Awesome. Yeah, yeah, we're, I'll be there. So super excited. So Peace Over Politics mm -hmm. is um, it's a basically a nonpartisan rally. The idea is that we want to get six speakers out. 
um, two from the left, two from the right, two libertarian, all anti-war, and unite the anti-war camps, you know? And, and so Scott Horton has agreed to come out and, and be one of the libertarians, mm-hmm. one of the libertarian speakers, and um, Michael Bolden is going to come and, and be the MC. so we'll sneakily get the majority. He'll be the third libertarian on stage as the MC. That's how we'll sneakily get the majority. That's but, um, never happened in the history of ever. <laughs> but no it's 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 really important you know because again like the like the drug war issue the anti-war issue publicly speaking is owned by the left and that is just not true and, and it's done really a imp- shit job over the last 10 years to be honest uh, right and and but not only that is it's important that if we get a captive audience well think about the crowd you know what i mean like if we get i, I don't want to name name everybody that we we invited but if we get decent names from left, right, and libertarian. Think about the crowd and the weird mix, you know what I mean? And basically, the, the, right, the right-wing people are going to have to deal with the fact that the left people are going to, you know, well, I should say the right and the libertarian people are going to have to deal with the fact that they're going to hear some anti-capitalist shit. Mm-hmm. The left people, the, the left people and the libertarians are going to have to deal with the fact that they're probably going to hear some uh, lifestyle shit, and, and everybody else is going to have to deal with the fact that they're going to hear some anti-government shit, and that's mm-hmm. just the way it is. Yep. And, and everyone's going to have to accept that. And it's going to be this big, weird, melting pot crowd. And I'm it's so a cap- excited. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a captive audience around what I would consider the most important issue, mm-hmm. uh, or one of the most important issues. And basically, everybody gets to make their case. So if we got Scott Horton and we get uh, you know, the other, one of the other people that we're um, uh, inviting, I think they're going to make the best case. So now we're, we're trying to change heart and mind, hearts and minds through that conversation. I, I think that I love that. Um... I think uh, I'm really glad that the Mises Caucus is kind of um, heading up the third part of this. Um, I would say that it is the most important issue of our time. You know, because we live here in the United States, we're not victims of our foreign policy, just domestic, which sucks sometimes. Um, But the worst atrocities that are happening in humanity right now are at the hands of like our government is literally hitting Holocaust numbers by aiding uh, the proxy war in Yemen. Uh, it is yeah. the most important it really thing is. happening. It really is. And so if we can lead that in the forefront, we could talk about economics all day. I'm always happy to, but yeah, uh, to me, that's the most important issue. And on that note, I'm one more, to- one yes, more link, ahead, just one ahead. last link. You the last it. link. So lpmesescaucus.com, askanaustrian.com, and then MisesPack.com. And if you are interested in the what I laid out as our strategy, a decentralized revolution, you can become a recurring donor for as little as $5 a month. And you aren't at the ground level anymore. We're already making over $1,000. So, you know, we already voted for our first disbursement to go to the Maj Touré campaign. So we are doing what we say. We are helping candidates. We are helping the party. And uh, we hope to be the, the, the main engine inside the party. That's awesome. Michael, I would say thank you very much. Guys, if you missed any of these links, I'll put it back in the comments, put it up on some pages tomorrow. You can just message me and I can send you some of this information too. So I would close out the evening, my lovelies. Uh, And this is my first podcast where I'm not with Anarchy Media again. So um, I would just say grace and peace to you and fuck the state.